Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. And today we explore the subject of diversity from two banking executives. Andy Lee from Royal Bank of Scotland and NatWest, and Bizan Tong from Barclays Private Bank and Overseas Services. Andy Lee is the Strategic Lead for Diversity and Business for the Royal Bank of Scotland and NatWest Business Banking. Working with a specialist team across the UK, Andy connects with enterprise initiatives designed to help black, Asian and minority ethnic, LGBT and business owners with disabilities wanting to start or scale their businesses. Andy, welcome to the show. Hello. Bizan Tong works at Barclays Private Bank and Overseas Services with responsibility for client experience within the UK Private Bank. He is actively involved in improving the diversity agenda and co-leads the Gender Diversity Pillar. He also works with the City of London working on a variety of diversity initiatives. And Bizan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And as always, at the top of the show, we invite each guest to take a moment to talk about the main initiatives they're focused on at the moment. So Bizan, let's start with you. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, currently, we're actually working on a variety of projects. So um, to expand, I'm currently co-leading the Gender Diversity Pillar at Wealth, uh, Barclays Wealth and Investments, at the same time working as part of a diversity working group in Barclays Private Bank. And the intention is to see where we can get both those streams uh, to continue to improve um, the gender diversity elements to reduce the gender pay gap, um, which is something that's at the forefront of our minds, and to improve um, areas for colleagues, female colleagues in middle management to have greater opportunities. Wonderful. Thank you. And Andy, how, how about you? What, what are you working on? So I'm currently working on the strategy for how, as a bank, NatWest better supports Black, Asian, minority ethnic businesses across the United Kingdom. So I'm doing that by working with local authorities, universities and enterprise support agencies, as well as our human resources department as well, so that we can engage better with the local communities, get our staff into more diverse communities and ensure that our staff have more diverse networks as well. And the reason we're working with the Human Resources Department is to ensure that the work we're doing externally is also mirrored internally for our BAME staff as well, because one of our sort of targets as a bank is to ensure that our top 4,000 roles um, are BAME individuals. So we want to get that to sort of 14%, and we're currently at 8%. So, and, and I think this is really interesting and probably the perfect sort of start for the conversation, really, because if I, if I look back to our first ever episode, which was with Heather Melville, OBE, and, and she was talking about um, the, 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 there's, a, there's a driving change, which I'd like to explore with you. There's a driving change, which is a lot of uh, BAME or young BAME talent is choosing to set up its own businesses, which are clearly, you know, your customer base, if you like. Is that fair? Are we still seeing that? Or, or uh, because given your appetite to drive change within your organisation as well, uh, I'm quite keen to explore the outside world and the inside world. Absolutely. So what we're seeing is the number of BAME individuals, you know, that millennial generation, are actually starting more businesses than previous generations. Now, you know, there's lots of reasons into that in terms of level high levels of unemployment in in the youth. 
What we also know is that migrant business, migrant individuals to the United Kingdom are more likely to start a business than those UK born. Various reasons, but the research shows the main reason being underemployment. And what we also know as well is if you have an entrepreneurial individual within the family, you're more likely to start a business yourself as well. The education system is also realizing that enterprise is a valid career choice for people. So we're seeing a lot more individuals working with us. You know, we work with organizations like the Prince's Trust and another area where you have high levels of deprivation, which is normally where the Prince's Trust work. We're now starting to see more people move into self-employment and becoming entrepreneurs. And I think there's there's lots of, sort of various reasons behind it. But we're definitely seeing people realising that rather going into corporates, they can start their own business. And I think we may talk about it a little bit later. But, you know, people want to work for an organisation that looks and feels like them as well. And if you look at corporates around the country, they don't necessarily reflect the makeup of the United Kingdom. And as you're thinking about your corporate change uh, and that corporate change journey of greater inclusion, are there there lessons you're learning from the entrepreneurial world that you're bringing in-house? Absolutely. So we have 12 entrepreneurial hubs around the country where we bring entrepreneurs into our buildings to help them accelerate their businesses. What we've done by having that is realise actually we have an opportunity to make our staff more entrepreneurial as well. So, you know, utilising the tools that we teach to entrepreneurs and holding a mirror up to ourselves and saying, how can we improve what we're doing? But also having that diversity lens over it. So, you know, as an organisation, we want to get to gender parity, but also we want to make sure that we reflect the communities that we serve as well, which is why Ross McEwen, our CEO, announced in January the 14% target by 2025 to have our top 4,000 roles as BAME individuals. What that then does is when we're out recruiting, whether it be apprentices, whether it be graduates or you know people that are coming in through normal recruitment, is making sure that we have those role models in, in the bank as well. So it is really important that we reflect the communities we serve because we know that our customers want to work and deal with people that understand them more. And if you're somebody that's from that community, then you have a better understanding to help them grow or build their business for their families. When, when do you think about the, um, you were talking about the, the entrepreneurial tools that you can then bring to make, create an entrepreneurial um, culture, if you like. Can you bring that to life a little bit more? Can you give us some examples of, of practical things that, 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 that you bring to bear in-house? Absolutely. So... What we always do when we start with an entrepreneur is we will sit down with them and go through a business model canvas. So that is a nine box grid that looks at the different elements of a business. And we do the exact same thing with with staff as well. So if you're working on a project, what are the core elements of your project? And we can match that up with pitching techniques. So if we're talking to businesses saying, you know, can you pitch your business for investment? We utilize the exact same structure, the same teaching methods with our staff. So, you know, what is your 60 second pitch? What is your three minute pitch? So the staff can be very articulate to either talk about the work that they're working on, or even, you know, if they're going for an interview or just wanting to make people more aware of what they're doing. So they're two examples of the type of tools that we work with 
our entrepreneurs that we're also utilizing with our staff as well. And, and I can almost sort of see there's an iterative circle, if you like, which is then you, you serve your clients better because if you can more keenly articulate what it is you're doing, you can serve your customers better as well. Is, is, is that fair? Absolutely. So, you know, a prime example of this is that in our entrepreneurial hub up in Edinburgh, we have the entrepreneurs sitting in the exact same building sort of side-by-side desk-wise with our technology team as well. What what the entrepreneurs said to us was, you know, these pitching techniques are brilliant, but at the moment I have to practice with an individual. Is there a way that you can develop an app for that? So the entrepreneur team worked with the technology team and then we released the NatWest Pitch app, which records individuals' pitch in the elements that is available. And we made that available externally through iTunes and and Google Play, but also it's available for staff as well. So staff can record their pitch and then we use Facebook Workplace so people can post their pitch onto the network that's available to over 60,000 members of staff across the globe as well. So people can, rather than just practicing with people in their direct team, you can put it online and then it, you know staff from all around the world can come back and say, have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? So it's definitely been really useful for ourselves working with the entrepreneurs because they've made us realize, you know, the the speed of change in the finance sector. We absolutely have to be the greyhound um, in the sector to ensure that we're innovating at the same speed as some of the fintechs that are coming onto the scene. The power of social tools as well. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Which, which you know, when, when you're looking at, um, I, I, I talk to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs serving kind of SMEs and also, you know, kind of the, the next scale up, if you like. And and I think that, I think one thing that's, because um, this is all very easy to talk about, but these are large organisations. I mean, I think about your two organisations and, and, and the need to kind of drive change. And, and listen, let, me, let me turn to you for a second because at the beginning you were talking about um obviously thinking about um the gender dynamic within your organization and particularly thinking around pay and then also the female middle management layers as well talk to us a little bit about some of the initiatives that are going on and uh, i'm very keen to to kind of get under the skin of the kind of practical ways in which we're driving change as well Certainly. So one of the uh, statistics that came about that really came as a shock uh, was in regards to the gender pay gap. And something that hits us hard is the top 50, the Times top 50 employees for women, of that almost half of them have uh, reported a gender pay gap which is higher than the national average of 18.4%. Now, of course, um, the reason that they're on there is less about um, that gender pay gap than about what they're trying to do for women. Because ultimately, every organisation that... uh, that submits their organisation for consideration has to fill out a form explaining their intent, their actions, and so on and so forth. And that makes me think of, let's say you're teaching a child how to play tennis and you're telling them um, how to swing the racket. And they're trying and it's wonderful, but at some point you have to realise that the pace at which you're moving is too slow or the other kids are going to end up playing ATP tennis by the time that person's handled that. So we need to think differently. We need to think of a different strategy. And so what we're doing is we're trying to take a more active step in understanding the perceptions of our female colleagues, and particularly those in middle management. Again, looking at the reports of different companies explaining why their gender pickup is quite high. Many of them give a reason um, stating that uh, we have a lot of secretaries. But does that simply imply that all secretaries must be women? Does that also imply that women have to only be secretaries and they cannot be leaders? And at Barclays, I'm 
I'm quite pleased that our CEO of Private Bank is a female, Karen Frank. Our CEO of Wealth Investments is a female, Dina Brompton. And we need to have more female leadership because if you have more female leadership, they understand, they better understand uh, our female colleagues and how they can support them and nurture and develop them to have meaningful careers. So that somewhere down the line, uh, when they hit, hit male management, it doesn't act like a glass ceiling. And that's why we're also working with the City of London on a project called Project Nurture, which is identifying that not just within Barclays, but within the, across the financial services industry. So we're doing that. And as a result, we also have to liaise with HR because they're the best people to, to note um, for understanding how our female colleagues act, especially, for example, if someone decides to pursue opportunities outside uh, the bank, uh, what made them prompt, what prompted them to decide that? Is it something to do with gender? Is it something to do with, uh, with other factors? And in doing so, we can act in a, in a different manner. And finally, I think um, unconscious bias is, a, is something that we need to take more consideration of. And it's something that we've been mean more proactive this year. So if we can do something around that, I think that we as an organization and as an industry can make a meaningful stride uh, to provide a better uh, culture, a greater atmosphere for women and ensure that they have the same career opportunities um, of men. And where, where are you seeing the greatest shifts at the moment? Uh, is it because because it's, it's wonderful, you've got these senior female executives and, and there's, we, we've talked on the podcast a lot about the power of role models. Uh, if you can see it, you can be it. Uh, what 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 are the the the, big, the biggest initiatives at the moment which you think are going to drive change for that middle management? Because there are many dynamics around why women leave, and it'd be quite interesting to get your thoughts on on on, on why that might be. One thing which I actually I, I personally very much liked was uh, towards the end of 2017, we decided to identify female colleagues in that role, in that uh, middle management role, who we felt had great opportunities, had great potential within them, and to identify their careers. So now we have those names. And what we're doing is we're supporting them. So they have their own teams, um, their own meetings, rather, their own conferences to build them up, to liaise, to network, because networking is key. And so that we can provide them greater opportunities to move forward. And we're keeping an eye on, on each and every one of them. When you talk about sort of their own conferences, just bring that to life. So it's people. strictly for them. And then they have uh, senior leadership across Barclays uh, to, to work with them, to lead them, to, to help them uh, in, in their roles. Uh, so this is something that's, that doesn't exist for, for their male counterparts. This is strictly for them. And that's because we feel that there's a there's a key issue around women leaving, uh, not just within Barclays, but within financial services as a whole. And they start to pursue opportunities outside the financial services industry. So if we can identify people who are promising and ensure that they are, that the opportunities are met, because ultimately as an organization, we want them to, to thrive. It's, it's great for them and it's great for us from a commercial perspective. If we can identify that, then we can create a strategy that will um, play out for everyone across the bank. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I'm very interested in is how, and, and this comes up a lot on the podcast, about the power of kind of um, interconnectivity between different networks, etc. So, So, for example, you know, male champions helping, working with me- female-focused initiatives and, and networks. Uh, I'm interested in both your opinions, actually, and particularly sort of thinking about the BAME community or the LGBT community or, or the community uh, of entrepreneurs with disabilities, for example, and they're seeing really fascinating growth around that. Is there, is there a drive for greater kind of intersectionality or is that utopia? Um, so what we also do is we have working groups constantly meeting where different pillars are, um, are meeting up to discuss the works that they're doing and try to f- find areas of collaboration. So, for example, when it comes to diversity, we're looking for ambassadors. We have to take into account that we need more male ambassadors 
so that we can uh, support them and also the LGBTQ community who we're also working with. Another pillar which is important to us is dynamic working, which is changing the way that we really that the organization works at how we adapt. And that has an impact on women because um, we we are concerned about many of them leaving, let's say, for maternity leave or for various other reasons, should that impede them in terms of their career progress. And that's something that's been an issue for, for many decades. And we're hoping to 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 tackle, to overcome. And not just about maternity leave, paternity leave, because we we believe that it should be equal for both sexes. Absolutely. And 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 then Andy, from your work with the external world, let's put it that the, the, the clients you're serving as well, are, are you are we, are we at risk of creating sort of silos of entrepreneurship that are specifically run and intended for certain segments, or or are we seeing a greater intersectionality? So I think at the moment there is a risk that it can be siloed. Uh, I think what needs to be done is having that mindfulness of intersectionality. So one of the projects that I'm working on with the University of Birmingham and Citizens UK is actually working with BAME business owners in three areas of Birmingham to actually you know, provide them with the type of business support that if you were a British-born business owner through your networks, you normally have access to. So we're in, you know, we're 18 months into the project and what we're actually finding is those business owners, you know, they've gained that confidence. They understand that by having access to these networks, getting great business support can help them grow their business, can help them with safeguarding jobs or, you know, employing more individuals. But the point that we're at with the project now is saying, well, actually, how do we bring it all together? And I think the important thing is not having it on the business owners. It's actually trying to influence the overall market to say, if you're running an event for business owners, then rather than running it in a city centre location where you may get sort of 80% white people attending, why aren't you linked up into the local communities and trying to get people mixing together? So rather than having disperse business groups, you actually get people working together. And that could be the same said for you know, rainbow networks in different parts of the cities around the country, the same for women in business forums. It's getting everybody sort of working together. And we're seeing the exact same thing within the bank as well. So we have our employee-led networks around women in business, our rainbow network, our disability network, um, families and carers. In terms of the women in business and our rainbow network, we also have the male allies program as well. So that if you are a male ally for women in business, you know, are you also taking shared paternity leave? Are you showing that, you know, you understand the the challenges that um, your female, whether it be employees or colleagues are facing as well? Are you reverse mentoring? You know, are you sponsoring a new graduate coming through? Um, and it's exactly the same for our, our Rainbow Network as well. It's people sort of saying, you know, I absolutely want to support colleagues no matter what their you know what silo I, I don't like using the word silo but it, there is a different definite danger that if people don't work together it can sort of end up in that situation however you know when you look at intersectionality you know if we've got a you know a black female lgbt employee you know they're like they will be part of three of the separate networks so it's about the network leads as well whether it be nationally or regionally all working together because if you're running a development session 
rather than just run it for one group. It's about, well, if we're running it in the city of London, invite everybody so that people start to, you know, mix together and share, you know, their common common challenges, but also having individuals that aren't necessarily part of those networks coming in talking to the people that are there and supporting them through the journey as well. And I think this this point about leadership is, is incredibly important, which is, um, you know, we, we're seeing this this incredible shift between whether we think middle management or top level management and, and needing to have very much an inclusive leadership mindset. And thinking about, uh, you know, particularly in the world of financial services, these are large traditional institutions. And, and Bizan, you were talking about, you know, kind of um, male paternity leave. And Andy was just referencing it there as well. Are you seeing that um, there there is a drive to greater inclusivity mindset with the management? And is that being taught? You talk about the role of HR as well. Is that is that being nurtured and taught and supported uh, through that, that 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 leadership journey, or are we still using sort of fairly institutionally framed mindsets and training courses in leadership coaching? I think that's one of the greatest changes that we're making, and it's why it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Uh, management and leadership are very much on board, uh, repeatedly having calls, making it clear that we need to make those changes. And it's not just words, it's about taking actions, having meetings, trying to mould, providing training, so that we can change or other management can change their mindsets and improve and be more empathetic. Can you give us some examples of, of, of specific areas that will drive that change? Because it's easily said, isn't it? I mean, any financial institution can sit around the table and say, yes, we, we do this and we care about it. I'm really interested in kind of getting into the, the heart of... Well, um, I'll provide two examples. Uh, the first is, in addition to our women's network, we're also involved in women on boards. And our agenda this year is focusing on fintech, which is a predominantly male industry. And our intent and what we're working hard to do is to put more women on boards in those fintech companies, working with different uh, with our clients, with different organizations to ensure that fintech companies can have female leadership. Because if we can do it at an early stage, then we can really make a difference within that industry. And the second is internal. Uh, we're working with our management management teams. We're working with them to provide, uh, provide some understanding and empathy in regards to our colleagues who decide to leave for maternity leave or even for other reasons. So uh, if someone uh, has a sick family member or if someone is um, has recently had a child, uh, it's beyond maternity leave, but now they need a change in the way they're working. So a colleague of mine, for example, has twins. And so as a result, uh, taking one, uh, taking them to school and so forth, it has an impact. So in the past, we, it might have been more stringent. It might have uh, been more challenging to accommodate. Now we're actively working to ensure that our colleague can, in, can have the same opportunities as us and enable it so that it does not impede upon her family life. So let's take a moment to turn to Cynthia and Robert for some research to support the discussion today. Women make up 52% of banking sector employees globally. However, they make up only 38% of middle management and far fewer are currently promoted to executive roles. These are the findings from Professor Michelle Ferrari's report, Gender Diversity in the Banking Industry. The research examined female representations across 71 banks in 20 different countries. In Canada, France and Sweden, 45% of the people at the board level were women, whereas in Japan, female representation at board level was just 12%. The FT and Heroes Champions of Women in Business lists are a powerful celebration of the progress being made by women across the UK, Ireland and around the world. 
They are published annually by the Financial Times, showcasing female business leaders and their male allies. Candidates are judged according to four criteria. Activities undertaken internally to champion women in business. Activities and nominees involved with outside of the workplace that help to champion women in business. Recent and significant business achievements and seniority and influence in the business. The 2015 Global Entrepreneurship Monitor polled at least 10,000 UK adults to gauge entrepreneurial trends, attitudes and aspirations. Here are some of their key findings. Immigrants were three times more likely to be entrepreneurial than lifelong UK residents. Immigrants and people aged 25 to 44 were most likely to start businesses and more women than ever were also seeking to start companies. A separate study conducted by the Centre for Entrepreneurs and Company Data Business, Judil, found that migrant entrepreneurs were behind one in seven UK companies. Since 2013, almost half a million people from 155 countries have settled in the UK and launched businesses, with some running more than one venture. Thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. And there you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please also do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Brightstalk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating because it all helps promote the show. One of the reasons why we've been doing the podcast is because if you can take the discussion out onto more mainstream and social channels are very important for that, then you get more people listening, to talking, debating and hopefully driving change. Well, I'm very interested in one of the things you're doing, Bizan, because you're taking this even bigger into the world of film. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? Certainly. So one of the things which I'm passionate to do, um, besides beyond the work of Barclays, is I also own a film production company, Phoenix Waters Productions, and which develops projects in, intended to enact social change. And the feature we're releasing this year is called The Escort, which despite its title is about gender perception within society. Um, it's about a young man who has 60 minutes to convince an escort to leave her line of work. But what ensues is a conversation about power dynamics, the reasons why someone would enter that line of work, um, trying to explore uh, and or rather showcase that a profession isn't a personality, that she's no damsel in distress and he's no saint. And this was actually inspired by something that occurred at work. Um, I was on my way to meet a client when an escort tried to sell her services. And for the conversation where I had, um, and, uh, she actually appeared quite charming, interesting, intelligent, and it made me quite dismayed as to why someone would pursue that line of work. And so what I wanted to do was explore that, explore what's happening in society. And that led me to have the most bizarre uh, coffee shop meeting, uh, seven escorts meeting at a coffee shop in North Finchley and having a roundtable discussion about, um, about what they do and why they do it. And it made me realize that some of them are educated, some of them have degrees, some of them are studying, uh, some of them are reading books from Dostoevsky and so forth. Why are you doing this? And they talked about society, they talked about unemployment, they talked about about the uh, current uh, Deliveroo and and so forth gigs. And the explanation that based on the economy, this seems uh, a rational way to to make an income. And so this film is really an exploration of that. Um, it's an examination of that and all society in general because women 
at least from from what I've seen, they t- have to work twice, if not ten times, as hard as a man to achieve the same role or the same position as they have. And this film explores that, showing that a strong, powerful woman, um, despite these incredible tra- traits she possesses, is stuck as an escort um, and trying to link that to society and the way it shaped men. Um, I just wanted to point out that I actually came up with this idea in 2015. Uh, I started writing a script, wrote it by 2016, shot it in 2017, before Time's Up, before the Me Too movement. Yet, rather frighteningly, the film uh, enacts some of the uh, some of the revelations which have occurred, uh, including a monologue about the way men behave the way they do, ending with Time's Up, including conversations about massages, including conversations which have all become part of the cultural zeitgeist. And I think that's less about being a soothsayer than about the fact that this has happened for so long. And it's been untouched. It's been a, a quiet secret, or rather an open secret. And now, hopefully, with what's been going on with the Women's March, with it being 100 years since the suffragette movement, that we are seeing change. And it's not just about harassment, but it's about opportunities for women. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what's driving? I don't want to be a spoiler alert on your film at all. That would be a terrible thing to do. But but what what in, in terms of the, the kind of the, the the journey of the film, what what's dr- going to drive that change? What we, is it a very positive film? Has it got a positive intention, or is it just a reflection of society at a point in time? I'd like to think of it as a film with hope. Um, it's something that is a reflection, or rather, gives a voice. Um, to those who haven't been given a voice. Even today, um, when I'm hearing the stories about Me Too and Time's Up, I have yet to hear the stories of, of sex workers. And, and it's to do that. But at the same time, yes, it's about creating change. It's about showing the opportunities available to them to, to make them not, not two-dimensional characters, but well-rounded characters and make us respect them. We might not agree with their profession. We might not agree with people in different occupations, with different political agendas. But it's about understanding their behaviours, respect them just as we would men or or any other person, and trying to ensure that there's equality by the end of it. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, and, and, and we'll be sure to let people know when that comes out. So Bizan, I, I, I look forward to the film enormously. This point you make about uh, common dialogue, I think, is, is, is really interesting. And this comes up a lot when we talk uh, on these podcasts, because ultimately it's about co- alignment and common dialogue and common intentions that will, will ultimately j- drive change. And, and, and Andy, you were talking earlier about an initiative in Birmingham. So I'm very interested in what you were saying about uh, the alignment of different parties around a singular objective and the role of um, business, banking and also academia as well. Talk to us about the initiative in Birmingham. Absolutely. So, you know, an important part of my role um, within the bank is where can I find source evidence to prove that we need to make a change? So, you know, I do lots of work with academic institutions around the country um, and the Centre for Research into Ethnic Minority Entrepreneurship based at the University of Birmingham released a report in 2015 that stated if you're a migrant business owner in the UK, one, you're less likely to access traditional business support, and also your business life is less likely to be successful for the main reason that either you don't have access to the networks or you're not gaining access to business support from from the mainstream. So I approached the Centre for Research to say, you know, I don't understand why this is the case. I live in in Birmingham and I see the business owners working with, you know, our members of staff and and our competitors as well. Um, And they actually said, well, 
that's your perception, but is that the reality? So we then spent some time doing roadshows where we went to three areas of Birmingham, um, which, you know, we took multiple measures to for the reasons for picking them around deprivation, around business startup numbers against, you know, business failure rates. And we spent six weeks going out speaking to business owners. And what we actually found was that the levels of trust were very low. So, you know, one one example, I was stood up talking to this business owner saying, you know, this is a really exciting opportunity to work with a mainstream bank, with, you know, a high profile university. And they just turned around and said, this has been done before. Are you just going to be here for the next few months and then leave us to it? So, which is where we then started working with the organisation called Citizens UK, who are a community-led organisation. And that was then funded by the Greater Birmingham Growth Hub. So what we found by engaging with Citizens UK is that we almost had a trust through association because they are on the ground working with the businesses. So since 2016, we've met with over 200 businesses to talk to them about working with them in a more intense way. Um, we've actually worked with 57 businesses on a one-to-one going through business model canvases, setting their strategy, you know, how do they take their business to the next level? And what we've actually found whilst doing this is that over 95% of the businesses had never engaged with the mainstream. And we've actually protected over 170 jobs as well. So what we know is that when you go out into the communities that aren't being served, you are supporting those communities to thrive, to prosper, to grow. And where I think it's really important for the financial sector is taking these learnings, and we're looking to grow this across the UK as well, You know, in places like London where we can say, if we go into these areas where we know it's entrepreneurial, these BAME individuals are starting businesses, growing businesses, if 95% of those aren't engaging and we have a fintech hub in London, then let's work with them, connect everybody together because we know that innovation in these communities is just as high as anybody else that has the traditional support to it. So I think academia and private sector and community organisations all working together for a common purpose is really important. That just sound, sounds amazing. And I think the fact that you can drive change, but, but and, and over time and over... Um, over the UK, but also how it lifts um, skills and identifies new skills and drives talent, uh, which is so needed in um, in the context of diversity and inclusion. This is what a lot of this is about, is actually finding that talent uh, and also driving and inspiring change. I think it's wonderful. Um, I'm very hopeful. It's been a wonderful discussion. Andy and Bizan, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, thank you. you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. 
Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.